When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Is coming in gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Moore. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Today, we're speaking to a man who cemented himself into the Aussie psyche when he became the first athlete from the Southern Hemisphere to win a Winter Olympic gold medal. Stephen Bradbury is a living example of dogged persistence, relentlessly fighting against the odds and holding on to your dreams. From a lack of funding and a lack of recognition to multiple life-threatening accidents and global fame, it's great to catch up with the ultimate last man standing. G'day, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, g'day, Sam. Thanks for having me on. What a uh, challenging year we've all had this year, eh? Oh, you say that again, but you're not averse to challenges. Although I wonder if this year's been so different, Steve, some things stay the same. And I just shake my head at how many times you must hear the phrase doing a Bradbury. I mean, it's <laughs> become part of the Aussie vernacular. It's alive and well on Urban Dictionary and the Aussie Slang Dictionary and all the rest of it. How does it actually sit with you, though, I was keen to ask? I absolutely love it. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up every time I hear it and probably the highlight was maybe six months ago where I was in a group of much younger people than me and they had no clue who I was and one of them used the saying and got the context right but didn't know none of them knew where it had come from or who Bradbury was and I was standing right there and I didn't say anything I just laughed on the inside and walked off happy as Larry. <laughs> Fantastic. So oh, the reason I ask you that question, though, is because the saying obviously implies, uh, you know, you fluked something. But, I mean, you went to four Olympics, you suffered two life-threatening injuries, and you competed as an elite athlete for 12 years. In some ways, it sells you massively short. Yeah, I get where you're coming from, and I understand the, the luck connotation that goes with the saying doing a Bradbury but nobody succeeds in anything purely just because they got lucky you know I trained four, uh, trained five hours a day six days a week for 14 years to put myself in a position to get incredibly lucky and 
I'm probably the luckiest individual Olympic gold medalist in sporting history. But that doesn't change the fact that I was the bloke in that position. And I think with my story, the average person, they can attest to do that in their life in whatever they're passionate about. Whereas if you put the average person in the same category with somebody that they can't imagine they can be that good, like Michael Phelps or Valentino Rossi or Kelly Slater, somebody that's just a completely amazing human. The average person can't attest to that, but can they pretend that they can train their guts out at something for a long time, put themselves in the right position, and maybe on their day have a bit of luck? Yes, they can. It is a very relatable story as you touch on. So what does life look like now for Stephen Bradbury in 2020? Obviously, 18 years after that incredible gold medal victory in Salt Lake City. been a real shock to the system 2020 um i've spent basically the last 15 years getting a pretty solid paycheck speaking at conferences and events where i've been on stage at close to 1400 of them in 23 countries and i had a pretty nice looking diary locked away for the year in 2020 and then on march 18 and 19 my diary emptied for the entire year Mm. and I was sitting across the dining table from my wife and I said to her, shit, how do we pay the bills now? Everything is gone for the whole year. And I, this was before JobKeeper was announced and loans were deferred and all of that. And I really let Captain Negative enter my veins. I was pissed off with the government for shutting down the country and taking away my livelihood and negative energy really got a hold of me. And, you know, when I speak, that's something that I talk about, about being positive all the time because that leads to good ideas, whereas negativity crushes them. And I was in a total negative space for a couple of weeks and eventually I I went out and did something that I've never done before. I bought a hedge trimmer. And I've never done my own gardening before. I borrowed my dad's second lawnmower. I've always said to my dad, why the hell do you have two lawnmowers? And I I borrowed his second lawnmower and I sacked the gardener and started doing my own gardens. And I'll tell you what, my hedges are bloody perfect. And I got that little bit of personal satisfaction and that was what started the positivity starting to flow through my veins again and enabled me to start to adapt, which... Eventually, I was able to do and I was forced to embrace going and speaking at conferences and events online via this bullshit Zoom and Teams and all this other garbage. And I didn't enjoy it at first and I still really don't because a live audience is much preferred when you're a speaker and entertainer. But I was forced to adapt and I did. So that's when you know you bottomed out, when you when you got the hedge trimmer. That was the lowest point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, that was the bottom of the barrel at the time. and. Yeah, being a, a speed skater from Brisbane as I was, as you can imagine, I didn't have a whole queue of sponsors lining up and I did it on the bones of my bum. Mm. But, uh, yeah, you can only work with the, the situation that's in front of you and I think a lot of people have, have had to adapt seriously in 2020. I know the book you wrote, 2005, Last Man Standing, but do you still have a, a stake in uh, Last Man Standing brewing? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a new thing, mate. I've, me and a couple of mates talked about it for over a decade before we actually did it. Yep. Um, we released 
last man standing Australian lager, which I honestly believe is the best lager in Australia. Uh, we released that about a year ago now, and we're on tap in about 20-odd venues on tap in, in Brisbane and around 100 bottle shops now. So if you want to check us out, go to lmsbrewing.com.au. We've got some merchandise and stuff there on the website too, some T-shirts and stubby killers. Get the plug in while we're at it, I think. <laughs> yeah, you got to. Hey, and I was going to ask you actually quickly here, Steve. I mean, you've been given things like the... Uh, um uh, Order of Australia Medal, Sport Australia Hall of Fame, but is there a better legacy than having your own beer? I, I, I say no. Well, it's pretty Aussie, isn't it? It's very Aussie. And uh, and it's uh, probably the most competitive market you could ever imagine wandering into. And about a year in now, I, I often pitch myself and say, why the hell did we start this? <laughs> because, you know, to succeed is it's like trying to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics being from Brisbane. Uh, pretty slim chance with the amount of competition and the big players in the in the beer industry, but you know we're three Aussie blokes having a go. And if there's one thing that that we can all learn on the back of COVID, is that we need to be prepared to pay a few extra dollars for stuff that's made in Australia. Yeah, and owned in Australia. Yeah, well said, well said. And it, you are against the odds, as you say, but you, your whole life's been built on that, so that shouldn't deter you in any way. And if Having a beer is a, a, a nice legacy. The other thing is having a movie made after you is a very nice legacy, Steve. It's the sporting moment that made Stephen Bradbury a household name. Bradbury is going to come through and win gold! And coined the phrase, doing a Bradbury. People that think anyone succeeds because they were lucky, because a bunch of guys fell over in front of them and that was the end of the story, well... Those people are probably spending a hell of a lot of time sitting on their couch. Now that story is set to be turned into a feature film. Movie producers have been chasing the rights to the Olympian story for nearly two decades. But until now, they'd all been skating on thin ice. Then when the scripts came back, everyone read them and they said, oh, I don't think there's enough in that for a movie. And I said, well, that's because you cut out all the good stuff. Now there's been a few false starts with this one, but the movie to tell your story, Last Man Standing, where is that actually at at the moment, given the year we've just had. Yeah, well, you were right in the false starts there, Sam. There's been, uh, that's into double figures <laughs> since I had the first approach back in 2003. But the uh, the team that's behind it now have progressed a lot further than any of the other pretenders that, that uh, thought they could get it off the ground previously. And the, the script is into its sort of fourth or fifth evolution now as written by a guy named Stuart Beatty who did Pirates of the Caribbean, Collateral, Ned Kelly, Australia. The list goes on so he's one of the, the best script writers on the planet. Uh, and the, the director is a guy named Chris Stenders who did the Red Dog movies and we're fully backed by Village Roadshow that's putting some funding in and they're going to put up the, uh, the marketing behind it, the biggest distributor in Australia. Uh, things have been stalled significantly through COVID. Uh, the actors as to who's going to play my dad and who's going to play me and that aren't finalised yet. Uh, we've, I believe the directors and the uh, producers have been trying to secure Russell Crowe to play my dad, but at this point that doesn't look like that's going to happen. would be nice. Right, but, uh, right. It looks like it will eventually get off the ground and, and the plan is eventually that we'll be filming it uh, sometime midway through 2021. Gee, that's exciting. And the big question, though, for you is you must have a preference over who plays you. 
<laughs> yeah, it's uh, initially they were talking up Liam Hemsworth, but I said his uh, his biceps were too big and his quads were too small. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, uh, he's six foot four and doesn't look anything like a speed skater, and I think he realised that too. So. That didn't happen. Uh, there's, a, there's a few actors that have been names have been thrown around. Daniel Webb is one of them. The guy who played uh, Vince Neil in the in the Motley Crue movie called The Dirt. If you haven't seen that, you got to see it. Yeah, classic. But uh, yeah, that hasn't been decided as yet. And I'm glad that it's not my decision as to who plays me, Sam. And I don't particularly want anything to do with it. They can, the uh, producers can make the call on that. <laughs> You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, Stephen Bradbury's incredible journey from sun-drenched Queensland to the Olympic ice. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're with Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medalist, Stephen Bradbury. Steve, where was home for you growing up? Oh, mate, it's funny that the segment's sponsored by a funeral company because, yeah, my sporting career feels like a lifetime ago now, Sam. (laughs) uh, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, a place called Campbelltown. And my dad first strapped a pair of ice skates on me when I was about three and a half. Uh, Mum still shows people the photos when they come to visit, me bawling my eyes out and absolutely hating it. And my dad says that, yeah, I think Steve was a bit traumatised after that day because he didn't skate again for four years. (laughs) My dad thinks that's a joke. But uh, I wanted to share him what my dad did and he was the national champion a couple of times back in the 60s and after I got over the trauma of starting it a bit early when I was about seven or eight, I got back on the ice and really enjoyed the speed that went with it. Every time I skated, I got a little bit faster and enjoyed that adrenaline, so kept wanting more. And it is, obviously, to, to make an obvious statement here, not exactly a part of the world where kids are queuing up to be speed skaters who compete in the winter games, but you mentioned your dad and then you went away and you came back. So, Steve, what was what eventually lit the spark for you and when to sort of really take it as far as you could? Yeah, well, my dad helped me like this fuck because he pushed me very hard when I was a kid. And as you mentioned, definitely not a popular sport in Australia. I, I remember I won the under-13 National Speed Skating Championships when I was 10, <laughs> and the kid who got the bronze medal also finished last. <laughs> very good. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly popular sport in Australia. <laughs> but but, hey, when but... I was 13, my, my dad could see that I had a bit of a future, potentially had a future in it, and he started pushing me to go cycling on the weekends and go running with him before school, and I hated him for it, so I didn't want to do it. But when I got to the age of 15, I, I snuck my way onto the national team. I went to the World Championships in Amsterdam. I was the reserve, so I didn't skate. And in the men's 1,000-metre final, I watched this Japanese guy, last name Kawasaki, same as the motorbike. He passed three guys on the outside, broke the world record by 0.8 of a second, arms across, arms up in the air as he crossed the finish line. And 
I sat there at the grandstand. I said to myself, I'm going to do that one day. Nice, nice. And the appetite for hard training, while it didn't come to you initially, it wouldn't come to many kids initially at that age, but it's something that really grew for you. And I guess your appetite for hard training is well known now, and your dad was a big part of that. As a teenager, you made a sign, didn't you, Steve? You put it above your bed, so it was the pretty much the first thing you saw each day, wasn't it? It was, mate. And living in Brisbane and not having daylight savings, when your alarm goes off at 4.30, you can see that sign because it's already light. <laughs> what, what did it say? It said, this is the Olympics. Get up. Fantastic. Because I knew that... I knew that my competition was getting out of bed and if I didn't get up when I get to the Olympics, and for me it was never a case of if I get to the Olympics, it was only about where I was going to finish. And I didn't want to have any regrets. So sleeping in and missing a session simply wasn't an option. Educator Steve, what makes a good speed skater, given it would appear that this is a sport that demands, obviously, explosive power, but also precise fine motor skills, if you like. Yeah, it's a combination of those things, Sam, and also having a huge aerobic endurance base because the the biggest part of speed skating, aside from setting your equipment up and having your blades tracking perfectly, which is a science in itself, but you really need to have huge lactic acid tolerance, which comes from anaerobic or high-intensity work and resting and backing up for another set and resting and backing up again. And so you can't get the, the anaerobic system to a higher level without building the aerobic system for lots of years in base training first. So speed skating is one of those sort of like a middle-distance running event where you have to have all the engines and systems of the body in place before you can perform at a high level. In 1991, Steve, you were still a teenager, but you're part of the Australian quartet that won the 5,000-metre relay at the World Championships in Sydney, and that was the first time Australia had obviously won a World Championship in a winter sport. And then the 1994 Winter Olympics in Norway, you were part of the short track relay team that ended up winning Australia's first ever Winter Olympic medal, a bronze. While you were making headway here in, in the team's format, were you really yearning for something more, that that yearning to compete individually with the best in the world on your own two feet? A hundred percent. And I was competing individually during those times as well and having some incredible results and some horrible results, depending on which uh, competition you want to look at. But the Olympics you mentioned there in Lillehammer in mm. Norway, where we got the bronze in the relay, and that was incredible to win Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. And as a team, we were all incredibly talented individual skaters as well, but we knew that the team format was the most likely chance to get a medal. But for me, I went in as one of the, probably one of the three or four overwhelming favourites to get the gold in the 1,000-metre event. Oh, and I... a skater from Belgium yeah. took me out in the first round of the competition, and he did it I'm pretty sure on purpose his job was there to to get in my road and he did it pretty well he got disqualified but I was left sitting there on the ice thinking this is bullshit first round of the competition they don't have each other on the television so for me 
getting the bronze was able to alleviate some of that disappointment and frustration that I had from the from being knocked down in the thousand meters. But uh, yeah, definitely had some unfinished business to take care of after that. Yeah, you mentioned you were one of the favourites. Yeah, I read a few things where you were, were the favourite, and I guess in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? But do you remember the disappointment after the 1,000 metres getting knocked over? Does it still come back to you as readily as, say, the successes do, something like that? I don't dwell on it at all because the, the way the rules were in the sport back then, they, they were changed in the late 90s. But there was lots of loopholes back then where unless the the accident happened in the last two laps of the race, you could not be advanced to the next round of the competition. Mm. And when I first came into the national team in my first couple of years, I was the takeout guy. I went out there on the ice to get in somebody's way on purpose and make sure they didn't get through to the next round because I had better teammates that had good chances to win. Jeez. And, you know, so I had to weigh that up in my head. I said, well, this bloke's just done to me what I did to other blokes a few years back. So, you know, I can't, I can't cry over spilt milk. I don't know if that's the right saying for that, but you know, in in some ways, you get what's coming to you, and the rules change in the sport. And over time, I started to develop, I think, a little bit more of a, a fair play in my mind as well. And whilst I always skated hard and competed hard, the I suppose, over-aggression in the sport due to the the loopholes and the rules went out of it and people started skating with a little bit more... I don't know what the right word is for it, but it wasn't overly aggressive anymore. And, you know, for me, I like to think that I played hard but played fair. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. Just visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, after the break... Speed skating is a dangerous sport that is notoriously vulnerable to catastrophe, something Stephen Bradbury knows all too well. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with four-time Olympian Stephen Bradbury. Steve, 1994, the Olympics have come and gone, but you're in Montreal for a World Cup event when you're involved in an horrific accident. What happened? Wrong place, wrong time, Sam. Uh, I was leading the 1500 metres final on the last lap in a tight tussle with Mark Gagnon and Frederick Blackburn, both from Canada, who were current number one and two in the world. And I had a good chance of taking the gold over them in that race. But uh, Frederick Blackburn tried to pass me on the outside. He didn't quite make it. And the three of us all fell together. And I ended up landing on the back of his blade, got impaled on it. His blade went clean through my right leg in a split second and, and ripped straight back out. Um... A person of my size back then had about five and a half litres of blood. These days, maybe six. But uh, I lost four litres of blood in in the next minute. Oh. It... And I remember lying there on the ice and feeling my entire body going into shock. I could feel my eyes closing. And 
I said to myself there and then, if, if I lose consciousness, I'm going to die. And I just found this insane amount of power inside myself and forced myself to stay awake because I knew that if I didn't, I was gone. And it's amazing the amount of power that a human can find when they put in a life and death situation like that. And, and the last thing I remember, I remember every second of it, that the last bit was when they got me into the hospital, they were running with me on the, on the gurney down the hallway to go into theater. And, and one of the doctors or nurses asked me what my blood type was. And I only knew because I'd been through the medical for the selection to be in the Olympic team previously. And I had just enough in me to tell them that I was O positive. And the guy said, you might've just saved your own life because they didn't have time to do a blood test and bring it back to find out what my blood type was. So they pushed me through the doors in that theater and started pumping me full of some Canadian black type positive, And then they knocked me out. That's amazing because I'm not sure, Steve, how many people would know what blood type they are. You know, I think I think a lot of people put their hand up to say they don't know. And, and you say you lo- you lost four litres of blood in, in about 60 seconds. I mean, it was said that your heart rate at the time was around 200 beats a minute. So that would explain why the blood loss was so swift, so severe, wouldn't it? It was like somebody turning the tap on full bore. And, and the hole in my leg, I needed I needed two hands to try and squeeze the hole in my leg back together. One hand wasn't enough. And, you know, there was there was a lot of things that, that worked in my favour after that crash to, to keep me alive. Uh, the doctor from the Canadian speed skating team had a tourniquet in the medical kit, which they got onto me very quickly and, and cranked it as tight as they possibly could. So, yeah, that guy um, pretty much saved my life in those moments. I think all four quad muscles were just sliced clean through. How many stitches were needed in the end, Steve? Do you remember? Uh, 131 stitches in my leg, external and internal. Wow. But for me, you know, once the once the life-threatening part of it was over, it was all about when I was skating again. I was 21 then and, you know, young, dumb and full of whatever they say and, I still had a lot of unfinished business in the sport and getting back onto the ice was never a question. Muscles heal quite quickly and unfortunately I was never able to get all the power back into my right leg. That's the the spring-loaded part of your muscles, not the strength. I actually got my right leg eventually to be stronger than the left in the amount of weight that I could push on it, but having all four of the quad muscles cut in half meant that the that the explosive power was something that I was never able to regain. But, you know, for me, it was it was a thing that I'd invested a lot of my life into and I still wanted to see what I could get out of it. The 1998 Olympics, Steve, in Nagano, they, they came and went. You came up short in the relay and you again you're impeded by collisions in your 500-metre and 1,000-metre individual events. But it's two years later, isn't it, that you reach another crossroads moment with another severe injury. This time... You're in Sydney. You try to jump over a skater who has fallen suddenly in front of you. What do you remember of, of what happened next? Yeah, it was a strange low-speed skating crash where I 
somehow wound up going head first into the barrier and my chin got pushed right down onto my chest and didn't feel like that much at the time but I had pins and needles all down the right side of my body which apparently is uh, spinal damage or vertebrae damage of some description and didn't feel like a lot at the time but eventually once I got the once I got the, the CAT scan I'd fractured two vertebrae in my neck and they wound up screwing a halo brace into my skull. I don't know if you've ever seen someone wearing one of those, Sam, but there's four pins screwed into your skull and you pretty much resemble a human building site. I saw the photo of you. Yeah, terrifying. I had to wear one of those things for two and a half months and I got some pretty funny looks when I was driving my car. (laughs) Uh, At least I thought I did because you can't see the bloke next to you in the other lane when you're wearing one of them. But I had a lot of time to think and... You know, that was only 18 months before I got the gold medal and everyone around me was telling me it was, it was time to hang up the skates. Even my mum was, well, Steve, you know, you got gold, silver and bronze at world champs. You got an Olympic bronze. You nearly bled to death. Now you're lucky not to be in a wheelchair. It's been a good career. But in my head, when I weighed it up, I'd skated a three-winner Olympic Games for Australia and I, hadn't, and I hadn't skated my best at any of them and I was doing my head in. I only had 16 months of training after the halo brace was taken off my head. 16 months of hard work out of 14 years is not that much. So I've got to go back and have one last crack at it. The the official sort of result, though, with this injury, though, Steve, is, is it right that doctors told you, or maybe multiple doctors, that you wouldn't be able to take to the ice again? Yeah, well, the initial doctor after they put the halo brace on my head, told me that I'd never skate again and I just packed up my stuff and went to another doctor. And what did that one say? Well, he was more of a specialist and knew what he was talking about. There was a lot of conjecture about whether I would be allowed to skate for insurance reasons, but uh, my dad ran the ice rink and there was a lot of free time on the ice at 2 o'clock in the morning when no one was using it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So Salt Lake City is obviously hosting the 2002 Games. You, you'll be nudging 30 by then. You've had, as you say, two career and possibly life-threatening injuries. That would be enough to scare most people off, and certainly many people around you had been scared off. But as you touched, it only fueled your fire, didn't it? Even though you knew that you'd be past your best at Salt Lake. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, completely fair comment. And I knew that realistically I wasn't going to Salt Lake to win medals. I was already past my best when I broke my neck. And in my head, it came down to I've invested my whole life into this bloody sport. And if I have to walk away now, I'm not going to be a particularly nice bloke to hang around. I got a lot of unfinished business and I just need to be able to put those demons to rest and finally go and skate my best at the Olympics. And what position I finish in is no longer the measuring stick. It's very personal now. I just I just want to go there and, and do what I know how to do when the whole world's finally having a look at what a speed skater from Brisbane's doing. Because they only watch once every four years. And I think 
a lot of people in in what they're trying to succeed in in their life they get they get close to succeeding but there's just that one final hurdle that sometimes stops them and they go and start something else afresh that they're not really that good at and I think especially in 2020 a lot of people might be jumping ship too early because you've got a skill set in what you're good at and the 21st century demands an expert and so for me these days I do that as a speaker and motivator on stage even though that's been disrupted in 2020 I think it's going to come back in full force once everything's back to normal which is hopefully soon but people sometimes make changes too quickly and in my skating career it felt like I'd already done all of that base work, all of that background and I only had 16 months to go so to not do it and start something else for only 16 months that wasn't a very long time in my head so what I'm going to do after skating I'll figure that out when I'm done but for this 16 months all my eggs are in that basket and I'm going at it We're talking to Stephen Bradbury on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with Steve, who's about to revisit the most unlikely and dramatic of Olympic gold medals. Salt Lake 2002 is next. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Olympic legend Stephen Bradbury is our guest today. Steve, take us to Utah, February 2002, and the competition that would change your life forever. You're the second oldest competitor in the field, but you start off by winning your 100 metre heat convincingly, don't you? Yeah, let's go with 1,000. 1,000. <laughs> I robbed you of a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the oldest bloke in the field was only four days older than me, so let's go with oldest. As okay, well. we'll rope that in. You're the oldest <laughs> and 1,000 metre heat, and you win it very, very handsomely. Yeah, I skated pretty reasonably in, in the first round of the competition. It wasn't the, the best race that I ever skated in my life, but to be able to qualify first in the in the first round and skate my way into the quarterfinals, final 16, pretty satisfying. But in the quarterfinals, you're up against a, a, a man that a lot of listeners might remember, the raging American favourite Apollo Ono and the defending world champion and someone you knew well, the Canadian Mark Gagnon. So only the top two advanced to the semis and you finished third. It was game over. Yeah, yeah, at that time in speed skating, they used to have, uh, there was four athletes that were called the Big Four, like the Big Four they used to have in tennis a few years back with Andy Murray being in with the other three. And I got two of them in my quarterfinal, <laughs> which when they handed me the draw in the change room and I saw those names, you know, my heart kind of sank a little bit. I thought, well, this is going to be tough to make it through to the final. But the quarterfinal, for me, was the highlight of my entire Olympics. Uh, the legs that I had show up in that quarterfinal were as good as I could produce being the oldest bloke in the field. And 
tactically I skated well. I put myself at the front of the race. I led the race from seven to go down to one and a half laps to go and then just ran out of legs. But the way the race unfolded, for me, I couldn't have skated it better. And, you know, to know when I got off the ice that I'd been able to finally skate my best at the Olympic Games was the highlight of my career. And as it turned out, in the quarterfinal, Mark Gagnon skated the dumbest race I've ever seen him skate. Four-time world champion from Canada. He let the Japanese guy, who wasn't as strong as him, outmaneuver him. And uh, then he ended up knocking the Japanese guy over and got disqualified for it. So I wound up in the semifinals. When did you find out that Mark had been disqualified? How soon after the race? It was about two or three minutes after the race. And, and I remember I was sitting there with my coach, little Chinese lady, Ann Zhang, and, you know, she slapped me on the thigh a couple of times and gave me that look, whereas, you know, that's that's all we can do. That's what we got. And it was a look of satisfaction from her, and I was satisfied with my performance totally. And and then uh, we heard that, that Mark Ignon had been disqualified and I'd been advanced through to the... I'd have been, for, therefore, advanced through to the semifinals as well. And it was like... We're back in. We're back in. And so, you know, it was suddenly all systems go again. I've got to, I got to warm down. i got to uh, get my skates sharpened and prepare for all the semifinals. You mentioned, Ant, you mentioned Ann there, Steve. So after that race there and before the semis, you and Ann Zangy coach developed a strategy, didn't you? And it was a conservative strategy. It was. It one that came through experience and judgment, knowing my own limitations and not one that I don't think I'd have been able to accept earlier in my career. And one of my teammates handed me the drawer in the change rooms again from the, for the semifinals and there was five skaters in it. One guy had been advanced due to a disqualification in one of the other quarters and I looked at those other four names and I thought to myself, honestly, I don't think I can beat any of them. And I had a chat with Anne about it. She agreed with me. So we decided that the best strategy to to maybe make the final was to stay out of the way in the semi and hope for a mistake. And as it turned out, I probably had slightly better legs under me than I thought because last lap in the semi-final, I, I had a little bit left, but not enough to pass four of them on the outside. And I was kicking myself a little bit on the inside because I was thinking, well, maybe I'm stronger than, than what I thought and I should have moved early and I would have held them, but really I wouldn't have held them. I would have used up my gas. As it turned out, though, in the last corner, three of them were all trying to finish first and second. They all got tangled up and fell. So I got second in the semifinal. The guy who won it got disqualified. So I won the semifinal and uh, into the final from there. That is just an incredible sign of things to come, wasn't it? And who would have thought history would actually repeat itself in the final? Lightning in every way, Steve, struck twice. This time, four skaters go down on the last corner. I know among them, of course... Takes the lead. He was advanced out of the semi-final. And there's the young Korean skater sliding on the inside. Sometimes you don't even know where he is. He's so small, he just slips in there. Right now, Ono hanging back and forth. They're trying to pass on the inside. Some jostling, common and short track. Apollo has to be careful. He does not want to get disqualified. And with only six laps to go, he does not want to get caught in the back when the pace really picks up. Now Ahn from Korea has taken the lead. Move on the outside. 
a great pass by Lee Zajun. Coming up on the inside. It's going to be between these two. A lap and a half. And oh no, here's the bell. One lap for gold. He's reaching back for one more deer. Trying to hold up Lee. They bump. They bump. You sail over the line for the victory that uh, you've only got to look at your face to to find a man who didn't quite know what to make of it all. Yeah, I wasn't sure if I should celebrate or hide in that moment. And, you know, it was the most unimaginable way to to finish something that had started 20 years earlier. And you know, we've been through some of the, the ups and downs that I went through in my skating career and you know, I, I never imagined that at my fourth Olympics, the oldest skater in the field, that I'd be leaving that Olympics with a gold medal, definitely not. And the strategy before the final with my, with my coach was staying out of the way. We'll most likely get us a bronze medal here because the other four are prepared to go through each other to win. And so the strategy was solid to pick up a bronze. We never imagined it would be better than bronze, though. You actually had reservations, did you not, about accepting the gold on the dais? I did, yeah. And you know, when I watched back the footage, I I look incredibly sheepish standing up on the podium. I'm I'm apologetic about being up there, and in the change rooms, I wasn't sure if I was going out to, onto the podium at all. And after that was the media conference, and I didn't know if I was going to that either because. I knew the whole world was going to ask me if I think I deserved to win or not. There was even a television crew waiting for me from Pakistan, as well as as well as every other country in the world. But you know, with some advice from my teammates and coach, I you know, I was able to weigh it up and decided that I'd go out there on the podium and I'd accept the gold. But I wasn't taking it for those two races. I was taking it for the 14 years of hard work in the lead up. We spoke a little bit off the top about legacy and your legacies. Your head was put on a stamp, I think, in the wake of this. You got the $20,000 royalty check for your image, didn't you? And you went off and I think you might have even bought a car, didn't you? Yeah, well, first I had to give my dad the 1000 bucks back that I'd borrowed off him to fix my car to get to training before the Olympics. <laughs> that, debt, that debt wasn't forgotten? No, it wasn't. And uh, yeah, dad got a new big screen TV and mum got a new kitchen and other bits and pieces, you know, that my parents were the biggest part of my support team all the way through it. And, you know, the stamp was was one paycheck that came and a lot of them came in a big flood, Sam. And I had made a dollar out of my sport the whole time that I was in it. And the day that I retired, I started to get sponsored and make money. Yeah. <laughs> Which to me felt entirely backwards. But uh, going from... A speed skater training at an ice world at Acacia Ridge in Brisbane in complete anonymity to Australia's most recognisable person overnight <laughs> was a pretty incredible ride. Uh, I, I can't imagine. And just on the funding, the part of it I really warmed to, Steve, is you obviously supported yourself along the way. And one element of that was you were making boots in your backyard workshop. Of course, a lot of people will, will know the Revol- Revolutionary Boot Company. And is it right that that company... <laughs> not, a, not a lot. So, well, you supplied Ono, didn't you, Apollo Ono, with free boots, and you'd actually asked him to endorse your boots when he when he won in Salt Lake City. Obviously, not thinking that you'd defeat him in the final. Yeah, well, we actually had around twenty percent of the Olympic field wearing our custom molded carbon fibre speed skate boots, 
for that Olympics. So Apollo wasn't the only one wearing them, but he was the favourite. And I sent him an email the night before the race. I said, if you happen to win tomorrow night, Apollo, can you try not to forget to mention the RBC sponsorship in the media? <laughs> so, yeah, as it turned out, I didn't need to mention it. Unbelievable. I do it myself. Unbelievable. Stephen Bradbury, it's been just great to catch up today. I mean, you paid your dues in a tough and dangerous sport and the 2002 gold medal was a fitting reward and then some for a career of toil. Your modesty and your humility in your greatest moment won your fans the world over. Well done on all you achieved. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Tang. Take it easy. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.